Welcome to the Brookings Cafeteria, a podcast about ideas and the experts who have them. I'm Fred Dews. Today's show features a discussion about Baltimore one year after the unrest that gripped its streets and an update on election 2016. And finally, a scholar talks about the upcoming United Nations Special Session on Global Drug Policy. But first, here's an exciting announcement about a new podcast from Brookings. Economic recovery, elections, terrorism, trade, global poverty. Policy issues are complex and multifaceted. Want more than the 30-second soundbite? Tune in to Intersections, a new podcast from the Brookings Institution, where two experts delve into the varying angles of the complicated issues facing our nation and the world. I'm your host, Adriana Pita. Subscribe now and be the first to hear new episodes. My guest in the studio today is Jennifer Vay, a fellow with the Centennial Scholar Initiative and co-director of the Anne T. and Robert M. Bass Initiative on Innovation and Placemaking, and she's a resident of Baltimore. Welcome to the show, Jennifer. Thanks so much for having me. So a year ago, in April 2015, uh, the death of Baltimore resident Freddie Gray while in police custody sparked days of protest and unrest, looting, arrests, a state of emergency was declared. Can you describe your feelings about what you saw on those days? Sure. You know, I'd say that my primary feelings as these events unfolded were of both sadness and of anger. You know, sadness because clearly Freddie Gray shouldn't have died the way he did, because businesses were destroyed, because the young people taking part in the destruction and the violence really didn't see another better outlet for their frustration at the systems they felt had just totally shut them out. But I know I felt angry, too, that the city was being portrayed to the world solely through the lens of its deepest challenges. And for those of us who care deeply about the city, who root for the city, who know what a great, if flawed, city it is, this was really tough. The media coverage in those days, weeks really, made it look as though the entire city was being ravaged by violence and fire, which was a really sensationalized version of reality. And I think a lot of people had deep concern that this portrayal would have a negative impact on the city, scaring away businesses and investment and residents and reversing the progress the city has made for the past couple of years. And so I was admittedly glad to have a platform here at Brookings, along with several of my colleagues, to put the events into a broader context that really wasn't getting reported on the cable news. It really is a great city. Uh, I love visiting it from my home in Northern Virginia. uh, We know it as Charm City, the city that reads. It has great sports teams. Uh, And and in the show, we'll we'll get to some of that at the end. I want to tell listeners that we're going to talk mostly about economic issues, development issues, poverty issues in Baltimore. We're not going to talk about the law enforcement side. We'll save that for somebody else. But I want to ask you then, you've written that there are, quote, two Baltimores. What do you mean by that? Sure. Well, in short, Baltimore, like many cities, is very polarized by race and income. And there's a powerful geographic component to this, too, with large disparities between neighborhoods. And we witnessed some of this pent-up anger over this polarization last April, certainly. So in the first place, the racial divides are very stark. If you look at median household income, it's over $62,000 a year for white Baltimore residents versus not quite $34,000 a year for African-American residents. About less than 15% of white Baltimore residents live in poverty versus 28% of African-American residents. And nearly half of white Baltimore residents over 25 have a BA or higher, um, while less than 14% of black residents um, have a BA. At the same time, the geographic divides are also really significant. So overall, about one in five people in Baltimore lives in a neighborhood of extreme poverty. 
And these neighborhoods are concentrated mostly just west and east of downtown and are largely African-American. So, for example, if you look at the Sandtown-Winchester neighborhood where Freddie Gray grew up, it's 96 percent African-American, 35 percent poverty rate, 23 percent unemployment, only about $24,000 in median household income. And yet at the same time, and this gets to this two Baltimore's you know, point, Sandtown and other low-income communities in Baltimore are located in a relatively affluent metropolitan area and in a city with a lot of vibrant and growing neighborhoods. So Baltimore, for example, ranks eighth among the top 100 metros based on its median income. And the region actually has a pretty significant black middle class. It ranks second after D.C., Um, in black median household income among the 35 metros with the largest black populations. It has high educational attainment levels, large numbers of STEM jobs. It also has a tremendous amount of economic assets, including world-class universities and hospital systems like Johns Hopkins, University of Maryland, global companies like Under Armour, a growing startup scene, and a lot of vibrant neighborhoods, particularly along the waterfront and in the northern part of the city. So if you look, for example, you know, at Sandtown versus an area like the Inner Harbor Federal Hill neighborhoods, which are 80 percent white, only about 10 percent poverty rate, only 4 percent unemployment and a lot higher median incomes than these other neighborhoods. And, and you know, what for all this polarization, I think it's really important to note, though, that this really isn't unique to Baltimore. A recent study by the Economic Innovation Group looked at inequality across cities and within them. And their analysis found that throughout the country, the most and least prosperous zip codes are actually pooling further apart. So while the wealthiest 10% of zip codes saw employment rise by 22% and the number of new business establishments increase by 11% between 2010 and 2013, the bottom 10% of zip codes nationally lost 13% of their jobs and saw one in 10 businesses close. So again, you know, Baltimore really struggles with this polarization, but it's not something that's only happening here. It's really, you really have to look at the national context. Right. Well, our, our colleague Alan Berube in the Metropolitan Policy Program, he called Baltimore a typical American city, and he was looking at a lot of these data that place Baltimore um, kind of right in the middle or even near the top of some of these economic indicators that a lot of other cities uh, also show. And then you cited a lot of data about the, the regional economy, um, regional growth. and But at the same time, Bloomberg Magazine called Baltimore, quote, the worst place in America to grow up poor in male. So how is it that in in a region like our own, given all of the strengths and advantages that a place like Baltimore has, how how do we still have these pockets of what y'all have called concentrated poverty in in, in the urban area? Sure. So again, you know, I'll I'll get to your first point, putting Baltimore in the national context, because, you know, as as Alan found, you know, in many respects, it is pretty typical of, of other American cities. It's level of concentrated poverty is actually about average among major American cities. It ranks 51st. And income quality is pretty similar to that of other big cities as well. Many other cities actually have higher poverty and lower employment levels um, among blacks than in Baltimore. So uh, Baltimore's African-American poverty rate puts it actually at about 75th among cities with, with large black populations. The economic innovation group analysis that I was just talking about a moment ago um, In that analysis, Baltimore was not actually among the top 10 most distressed cities, though it was up there, um, nor was it among the top 10 most unequal cities. But again, as I've noted, there's really wide disparities. And and that study by Raj Chetty and Nathaniel Hendren, this is the study that was cited in the Bloomberg article you mentioned, 
shows that these disparities really impact economic mobility. And that study found that low-income children are most likely to succeed in counties where you have less concentrated poverty, less income inequality, better schools, larger share of two-income, um, two-parent families. And, you know, in their study, they, they actually show the boys' outcomes vary more across areas than girls and that boys have especially poor outcomes in highly segregated areas. And here's where Baltimore just doesn't look terribly good on these measures. Um, a low-income child they found growing up in Baltimore would make about 17% less by age 26 than one growing up in an average place in the country. Males would make about 28% less, um, while females would make about 5% less. So in short, the study is basically showing that that mobility in Baltimore, especially for boys, is really limited. So I think you know what this all points to is that you've got this these deep levels of segregation, and even if they look you know similar to a lot of other cities, the long term effects are really profound. So when we think about these other cities like Washington D.C. even or Boston, San Francisco, uh, what's different than about Baltimore? Sure. So let me talk a little bit about the, the, the poverty point, because these cities have poverty as well. Um, so if you look at concentrated poverty nationally, according to Joe Courtright and his colleagues at City Observatory, since 1970, the number of high poverty neighborhoods in the U.S. has tripled and the number of poor people living in them is doubled. And actually, very few of the communities that were poor in 1970 nationally have seen their poverty rates rise to below the national average. This is a pretty significant finding. And I say this not to diminish the the very real issues facing Baltimore, but to emphasize again that they aren't actually unique to to the city. Concentrated poverty is widespread and persistent in cities across the country, and we really need to be thinking about it at the national level. So actually, on this score, in fact, San Francisco and Boston, a little less so D.C., are actually outliers. An analysis by Elizabeth Kneebone here at Brookings found that almost 21 percent of Baltimore's poor population lives in census tracts with 40 percent poverty or higher. So these are really um, areas of deep concentrated poverty. So that compares that 21 percent compares to less than 15 percent of residents in Boston and less than 5 percent in San Francisco. D.C. on on this score is actually pretty close to Baltimore at about 18 percent. But what's interesting is other research here at Brookings by Alan Berube and Natalie Holmes finds that that these three cities, you know, again, San Francisco, Boston, D.C., are also among the top 10 with the highest income inequality. And their racial disparities are actually also very, very sharp. So, for example, in San Francisco, the spread between in in median income between African-Americans and and white residents is actually sharper, much larger difference than it is in Baltimore. But the big difference is African-Americans only make up about 6% of San Francisco's population compared to about 63% in Baltimore. I think, you know, again, this is not in in any way to to try to diminish the the very real issues in Baltimore. Um, And because the fact of the matter is, however Baltimore compares to other cities, we can't ignore the fact that it has a particularly troubling history of structural racism that helps explain how we got to the place where we have such high levels of racial and economic segregation in the city. There's this actually really great new piece by Alex, Alec McGillis in Places Journal that describes some of this history, focusing particularly on the issue of transportation and how it contributed to, indeed, how it's still contributing to, the spatial segregation and all that it has wrought in Baltimore over the past century. 
Can you talk about that a little bit more? What is the spatial segregation and the transportation issue? Sure. Well, what what um, Alec really focuses on in this article is looking at kind of the history of structural um, racism, particularly in housing, and you know how that looked over time. Baltimore had some of the most significant housing or- ordinances that that segregated whites and blacks, going back you know really to the nineteen uh, teens and nineteen twenties. And at the same time, you had it, transportation issues going back to you know where and where highways were built and their function of moving people out of the city, how they cut neighborhoods in half, where the streetcar lines went and where they didn't go, um, and then he he sort of carries this history of transportation, tying it to all these other issues um, that were playing out in the cities in the city, um, the the racial policies that that were you know institutionally designed. To, to segregate whites and blacks um, and and really how how that led to a lot of these issues of concentrated poverty that we see in the city now and he, he moves it up to the present um, to to indicate you know the the red line project which some of you may be aware was uh, a light rail project that had been in the works for for quite a long time in Baltimore really meant to connect finally some of the transportation network in Baltimore and connect um, some of the lower income neighborhoods together and, and to, to the job centers in Baltimore. And unfortunately, that project actually was um, killed by by Hogan when he came in. Um, Governor Hogan. Yes, sorry, Governor Hogan um, when he came in after the unrest last April. Let's take a quick break here for John Hudak's update on the presidential election. As the 2016 presidential campaign continues to roll on, something interesting is happening between the parties. Their behavior and their approach to campaigning is beginning to separate. Democrats, uh, behind their frontrunner, Hillary Clinton, are really starting to turn attention toward the general election, toward Donald Trump, who's the Republican frontrunner, in beginning to strategize how they will take on uh, the Trump machine come November. As Hillary Clinton continues to rack up a delegate lead, and Bernie Sanders falls further and further back, it becomes clear that Clinton has a clear path to victory and will likely be the Democratic nominee for president. On the Republican side, while Donald Trump is the frontrunner, the Republican Party establishment, as well as other presidential candidates like John Kasich and Ted Cruz, are trying everything that they can to stop Donald Trump. That has broken down into a continued war of words between Trump, the frontrunner, and the others running in the race. And the campaign is getting more and more difficult for even Republican voters to stand. Polling suggests that uh, a majority of Republican voters are bothered by or are embarrassed of how the campaign is continuing, while Democrats are quite satisfied with the campaign thus far. That creates some real challenges, not just for the party moving into uh, the next states with primaries and caucuses, but for the Republican Party moving ahead into the general election. As we move into the summer and candidates begin to look toward their convention, Democrats are clearly focused on what will be effective messaging in swing states with key demographic groups, while Republicans continue to be bogged down in what is a long, drawn-out primary. It will be interesting to see how the Republican Party responds to what may likely be a brokered convention, and the caucuses and primaries over the next 
few weeks will largely determine whether Donald Trump coasts into Cleveland with a clear lead as as the eventual nominee or whether the party convention this year will look like party conventions 100 years ago, where party elders in smoke-filled rooms determine who will eventually replace Donald Trump and generate the new Republican nominee for president. I'm John Hudak, and that's what's happening in election 2016. And now back to the interview with Jennifer Vey. Let's talk about where Baltimore is now and, and where you think it needs to be going. So it's been about it's been a year since the unrest. Uh, what have you seen city, state, county leaders doing perhaps differently uh, than they were a year ago? Sure. So, so first of all, shortly after the unrest, you had efforts like One Baltimore that was this public-private partnership um, that was launched to help communities that were impacted by the riots, focusing first on, on those near-term impacts, but with, I think, larger ambitions to address employment, education, housing, and other key issues impacting the city. And since then, there's certainly been a lot more conversation and change in criminal justice policies, from implementation of body cameras for police to review of how bail is determined. There's been a greater focus on issues of youth disengagement, with an emphasis on expanding opportunities for youth employment. And both the city and state will be investing more in fighting blight through the demolition of abandoned buildings and and hopefully through new development um, in, in in neighborhoods as well. Interestingly, I also think that the unrest has led to a much more dynamic mayoral race than we otherwise may have had. A very large field of candidates is running this year, and nearly all the candidates have laid out plans addressing not only economic growth, but also inclusion and equity. Um, and I'd say that these issues have really been become a major part of the race. So what specific kinds of policies do you think the city itself and maybe the county that it's part of? It's Baltimore County, right? It's actually not. It's separate from Baltimore okay. County. So Baltimore City is its own incorporated jurisdiction, and the county is it's a, it's a separate okay. jurisdiction. Okay, so Baltimore yeah. City, uh, what, what kinds of things does it really need to do moving forward to improve quality of life and opportunities for its residents? The persistence of concentrated poverty really demonstrates just how deeply complex of an issue it is. I mean, I think we can point to to many of the reasons behind it, but what we actually do about it, and by that I mean not just how do we alleviate the worst symptoms of poverty, but how do we actually raise incomes and lower the absolute number of people in poverty, is is tough. And and given fiscal constraints at the city, state, and federal levels, um, improving economic opportunity in distressed neighborhoods. In, in Baltimore and, and other cities as well, really has to be a multifaceted effort involving the collaboration of many stakeholders, including civic and community development groups, certainly the public sector, workforce intermediaries, anchor institutions, and and importantly, the private sector as well. And I think these, you know, really that this comes down to a few key things. Um, first, you know, these, these leaders really need to focus on how to leverage the region's existing economic strengths to grow the types of industries that provide more and better paying jobs. So in Baltimore, for example, sectors like Information technology, advanced healthcare, bioscience, logistics, particularly anchored there by the by the port and the airport, offer some of the best opportunities for people to make a good li- living, often without a college degree. And uh, the region has a really powerful set of assets and advantages that should help these sectors grow, including a robust network of colleges and universities, world-class hospital systems, close proximity to, to the nation's capital. And, and unique and vibrant communities where people and firms want to locate. 
So, you know, for the region to help raise more residents out of poverty and into the middle class, it really has to build first from these strengths, um, many of which are actually located in the city in close proximity to some of the most distressed neighborhoods. You know, the fact is we want, we need people and firms and anchor institutions to continue to invest in Baltimore's job centers, including the strong market areas in the downtown, the waterfront, Harbor East, and around our universities and medical centers. And, and really only by doing this can the city continue to grow the number of businesses and jobs as well as a robust tax base. But the second, the second key piece is while growing the right kind of economy is essential, it, it clearly isn't enough because we haven't seen this trickle-down effect from existing growth, growth that's, that's really benefited everyone. So equally critical is that existing residents have an opportunity to participate in the growth by being able to access new jobs or open a new business and by seeing the kind of improvements in their schools and their neighborhoods that new revenues can help finance. So in practice, this means, for one, creating a really strong workforce pipeline by investing in early childhood education, by ensuring that youth get exposure to the workforce through internships and paid employment opportunities, um, by designing workforce training programs that actually meet the needs of regional industries and that connect participants to employers so they actually have a job waiting for them at, at the end of their training, and it means providing financial and technical assistance to those who want to start a small business. We clearly need a, a much stronger ownership model that's a lot more inclusive than, than the one we have now. And then I think the third piece of this, in addition to, you know, it's growing industries, it's making sure people are, are able to, to connect to them. It's also investing in, in our neighborhoods um, by focusing on everything from public safety to health care to physical improvements to amenities. And then making sure that we physically connect those neighborhoods and the people within them, certainly, um, to urban job centers through stronger public transit systems. Well, I, uh, I want to kind of close out our discussion here with as hopeful a note as we can muster. As I said at the top of the podcast, I'm very fond of Baltimore, even though I'm a northern Virginian. Baltimore is a great city. I love visiting there. Jennifer, tell me something you love in particular about Baltimore. Sure. Well, you know, I think Baltimore is really a, just a tremendously livable city. So it has all the amenities of a large metropolis. It has diversity. It has arts and culture and great restaurants and really interesting neighborhoods. But it also can feels like a small town that you can really be a part of. It, you know, it's it's kind of a for real kind of place. It's, it's beautiful in many ways, but it's gritty and it's quirky. Um, John Waters is from here, remember. Um, I lived in D.C. for a decade, and while it's a wonderful, very cosmopolitan city. Baltimore just has a more comfortable feel, at least for me it does. I know a lot of a lot of people who visit Baltimore like to go to the Inner Harbor. There's a lot of neat things there, the aquarium. But tell me something that maybe visitors should do in Baltimore that it's beyond the Inner Harbor. Sure, sure. Well, you know, first of all, if you, if, you, know, if you haven't been to the aquarium or, or to an Orioles game, not to mention something like Fort McHenry, yeah, you definitely should go. And if you are in the Harbor area, um, go across Key Highway to the Visionary Arts Museum. From there, walk to Federal Hill Park for a fabulous view of the city. Then head across to Cross Street Market, get some steamed shrimp. Or if you're at an O's game, I'd say walk a few blocks north to Lexington Market, which is a huge indoor market in West Baltimore that's been around since the late 1700s. But, you know, as you point out, there's a lot of other great places and neighborhoods throughout the rest of the city as well. So, you know, if you come to Baltimore, head towards Highland Town in southeast Baltimore, get some, you know, really great Latin American food at a lot of the restaurants along the way, you know, and then take in a performance or an exhibit at the Creative Alliance. 
or go north to Hamden, poke around the galleries and the boutiques, eat at one of any number of great restaurants. There's just, you know, a tremendous amount of things to do, you know, all over the city. And uh, I'll stop because I don't want to sound like a brochure. Seriously, Baltimore has a lot of tough challenges. But, you know, as our bus stop benches will remind you if you visit, it's the greatest city in America. It is a great city. Thank you for joining me today, Jennifer. Thanks so much for having me. I enjoyed it. Finally today, I talked to senior fellow Vonda Felbab-Brown about global drug policy and the upcoming United Nations General Assembly Special Session on Drug Policy. Vonda, what is this thing we call by its acronym UNGAS? UNGAS is precisely what you um, introduce. It is the uh, Special General Assembly on a particular topic, in this case on the state of drug policy, drug use. It's a very major review at the United Nations when uh, the Special Assembly meets because it involves really all actors uh, discussing and and reviewing uh, broadly what has been the state of effectiveness of global policies on the particular issue, in this case drugs. And the way that uh, the the Special Assembly came about uh, ahead of its time, three years before it was um, scheduled, is because there is a profound dissatisfaction in some parts of the world, primarily Latin America and Western Europe, with uh, the effectiveness of counter-narcotics policy in the sense that they are doing more harm than good. But this view is not shared elsewhere. It's not shared in East Asia. It's not shared in Russia. It's not shared in the Middle East. When was the last time such a meeting as this took place? Mm. So the last session was in 1988. And um, at the time, it introduced a um, set of new uh, policies that that really um, codified and anchored some of the hardline policies on drugs. And that is now... um, a belief that these policies are ineffective, or at least uh, belief on the part of some of the actors, and again that they are more counterproductive. So the the next session was supposed to be in um, in um, uh, 2019, um, but uh, it's meeting three years ahead because several countries pushed for uh, a review earlier. Now there actually was another session in 2006 that also reviewed drug policy, but in no way was as um, sort of profound in anchoring certain policies in as the 1988 session. Can you talk about what some of these disagreements uh, that you've alluded to among nations on drug policy are? Mm-hmm. So uh, for the past 20-some years, uh, 30 years, uh, there was a set of essential hardline policies. Criminalize, uh, certainly drug trafficking, focus on the disruption of drug uh, markets, disruption of drug supply, um, seizing the, the shipments of drugs, as well as imprisoned users. Now, often uh, there would not be a specific requirement to imprison users, but de facto, uh, policies were translated into many nonviolent drug users around the world being uh, either sent to prison or sent, in the case of East Asia, uh, to um, so-called treatment centers that for all ostensible purposes function like special prisons. So in the United States, for example, there has been tremendous growth in the prison population related to drug use and low-level drug dealing, as many addicts support their habit by um, uh, dealing drugs. And this has a tremendously negative effect, particularly on African-American families with large numbers of um, uh, African-American males being um, um, in prison on drug charges, but also on the whole family life, and has greatly overburdened um, the U.S. justice system, correction uh, system. 
speaking of the United States, I want to quote from the policy brief that you co-wrote with Harold Trancunas, and, and you wrote, as a result of changes in its domestic drug policies, the United States finds itself increasingly in a questionable position in terms of compliance with the international counter-narcotics regime and treaty interpretation it fostered. And this goes precisely back to the issue of the, the marijuana legalization taking place at the state level. Um, one of the big fundamental issues is whether this is consistent with the international uh, treaties. And certainly 10 years ago, maybe even less than that, the United States would have said absolutely not. But since then, um, Uruguay has legalized uh, the production of uh, and, and sales of marijuana. Um, and they claim that they are not in violation of uh, the UN treaties. And the US, several U.S. states have um, legalized and more have legalization of marijuana on the ballot. The big um, uh, case will be whether California legalizes this fall. But the United States is now saying, look, um, we need f uh, flexibility in interpretation of treaties So because the United States does not want to be in uh, uh, lack of compliance, formal lack of compliance, whereas previously it was denying such a flexibility to countries such as uh, Switzerland or um, the Netherlands. And then finally, in the, in the United States context, what kinds of policy changes do you anticipate may come out of this, if any? Well, I'm not sure that the United States will necessarily um, drive its policies by the result of ANGAS, I would say the opposite. The United States has tried to shape ANGAS uh, to match its policies, including by now embracing uh, treaty flexibility. But there are sort of strong forces uh, in the U.S. on the ground, including the legalization of marijuana and how that um, shapes uh, policies toward uh, drug use, but also how that encourages or discourages other countries to... Um, experiment with their own policies. So um, I would say for the United States, more than the UN session, uh, it is its own domestic policies that are driving uh, global trends. But for many countries, um, the, the UN session is very important in um, giving them a sense of how much latitude they have toward experimentation or not. And uh, again, I think there is much more of a learning, for example, that in order to combat um, HIV, AIDS, hepatitis, and other um, um, infectious diseases, throwing drug users into prisons, denying them um, medical care, denying harm reduction measures such as needle exchange are negative, that, that it hurts, not helps public health issues. Um, I think there are perhaps too exaggerated expectations of what alternative development can do. It's very important because so many uh, policies toward drug supply have been so punitive uh, and have really ignored the plight of very marginalized, very poor populations, which overwhelmingly are the majority of drug uh, users. But nonetheless, um, alternative development takes uh, decades of um, efforts, resources, and auspicious circumstances, and we will not see major reduction in drug supply in three years when the next uh, UN session will uh, meet. And uh, I think that uh, we need to um, really face also the fact that we uh, are not very good at reducing demand, that drug prevention and demand reduction measures have often not worked, 
and we need to really smarten up about those. So to me, for me, the biggest positive effect is that there is now possibility for experimenting with policies which will hopefully produce learning, which will hopefully produce uh, evidence and encourage policies to go in a better direction than has often been the case. Well, thank you for your time today, Vanda. My pleasure. You can follow Vanda's research on UNGAS and many other topics on our website at brookings.edu. And that's all for this edition of the Brookings Cafeteria. My thanks to our audio engineer and producer, Zach Colzer, with editing help from Mark Holscher, plus thanks to Carissa Nitschi, Jessica Pavone, Eric Abelah, and Rebecca Weiser, and our intern, Sarah Abdel-Rahim. You can subscribe to the Brookings Cafeteria on iTunes and listen to it in all the usual places. And you can send feedback email to bcp at brookings.edu. Until next time, I'm Fred Dews. <laughs>